to another episode of Talking Force. Today is a special day. Today we have an incredible guest in Dr. William Kramer. He's an incredible mentor of mine, incredible friend, and obviously well-accomplished researcher in his field. But specifically today, this is one of the first times that we'll get to see another side of Coach Kramer, who is someone who has applied his research for years, for decades, in conjunction with other pioneers in the field, whether it be Boyd Epley or uh, Jerry Martin, or I was fortunate enough at Yale to have him work alongside with our staff and really push the envelope. And anybody that's really worked with us, you know that there was a lot of things that we did rooted in science, rooted in experience, but also paid, paid homage to the things that have worked before us. And so one of those things is, as everyone knows, the metabolic circuit that was designed back in Nebraska, affectionately known as the Husker, as being one of the main cornerstones of our program. Not the only thing, but a very, very powerful tool, a tool that allowed us to gain a competitive advantage by not only developing the muscular um, systems of the body, but also the buffering systems and some other really cool things today. But throughout time and throughout years, this program and this architecture and design has been very, very effective at doing one thing, and that is putting on muscle. And if you look back into the history books, you'll see Boyd Epley talk about its base phase. You'll hear him talk about the survivor circuit. You'll hear him talk about short rest protocols. You'll hear a lot of these things about the mystique and the mystery of it. But not many people know the origin story. Not many people understand why it was created what it actually does and how effective it is and when to properly apply it. So today we're going to go back in time to the man who helped invent it from day one and that's Doc. And Doc, thank you so much for coming on. I have so many questions and we have other people that will be sending us information and questions as well later on, but thank you so much for coming on today. Yes, thank you. I'm I'm really excited to be here to talk about a type of program that has a long history in the field of strength and conditioning. And uh, I was fortunate enough to spend uh, a long time kind of customizing it and really understanding it better as a type of program that could be utilized as a part of the toolbox to be able to get at certain aspects of physical performance. Yeah, I know when you came to visit us, one of the questions you asked us was, what's the biological system that creates motion, that initiates emotion? Uh, uh, sorry, locomotion. And I said, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. And you looked at me and said muscle. I think back to what Boyd said, which was, if you want to make an athlete better, you put on muscle. And for many people, they say, oh yeah, that makes sense. But how much muscle can someone put on? How do you go about doing it? You know, is it muscle within a year? Is it muscle in a month? And what protocols and strategies can you use? There's bodybuilding programs, there's body part, there's splits, there's push-pull. But I want to come back to the, the metabolic circuit or going forward, we'll just call it the Husker, um, that we use time and time again. It's a full body exercise and specifically it's in a circuit form and it's on the clock. And so there's auto regulatory factors um, of timing and load and work rates that are really, really specific. And I want to kind of ask you, go back to the first day when Boyd reached out to you and said, hey, like we need to beat Oklahoma. We need to develop a plan. What was that conversation like? And how did you begin to start? Because correct me if I'm wrong, this was in its very infancy of resistance training historically. So there wasn't a ton of references as far as established football programs uh, that could be implemented 
team-wide. How did you guys start with that and how did you build it? Well, I was, you know, this goes way back when I was a college football coach and also a strength coach. And I, I was visiting Boyd back in, I believe, about 1977, 78. I guess it was 78. And I was at Nebraska and I was starting to become interested uh, in a couple of years later, I'd go back full time as a doctoral fellow in, in physiology and biochemistry. But I was interested in program elements and why programs are being utilized. And, and back then, what Boyd had come up with was this construct of what we call the survivor circuit he had meaning he was interested, which is kind of a little different than how it ended up being evolving relative to the role it plays in, in muscle uh, development and muscle mass. It really was looking at an alternate to the strength programs, meaning the interval circuit type of, of training wasn't really been taken advantage of as much as he thought. And this was a way that you could actually develop metabolic functions and capability to offset fatigue. And that's something that's very important. It's kind of forgotten because an athlete, you know, you need muscle mass, but you also need to be able to produce force and produce speed and agility and power when you're tired. And this was one of the major features that the survivor circuit was really started at. We wanted to have, uh, you know, be able to move weight very quickly with very short rest intervals. And this was one of the things that, that it started off as. But I, I hear that, but what's the difference? I know a lot of times people will say, well, just, you know, there's no difference with the sprinting, with the medicine balls, particularly as it related to conditioning under the bar. This was an extremely heavy conditioning. And and can you just kind of unpack that a little bit? Because I know one of my, you know, pain points was explaining is that, no, you can't just go for a run to get in shape. I think people don't understand what get in shape is and how it specifically applies. In this case, we'll just focus in on football, but your sport in general, conditioning is very specific. Could you just kind of unpack that a little bit? Well, I think the the aspect of muscle activation is what it what it's all about. How much muscle is activated to do a particular sport action or ability is related to the recruitment of muscle tissue. And we've talked many times before about size principle. The intensity, the load will dictate how much of the muscle is activated. And it's only that muscle that's been activated that actually develops an adaptation. And that's what's really important here. So activated muscle will adapt in response to what the exposure stimuli is. And and again, this, this particular program started off that we're building strength with heavy loading exercises. And what Boyd wanted to do is that it's no good if, in fact, after one type of uh, ex- repetition, basically what happens is that you're getting the fact where you can't produce another one. And that's where you talk about performance. And, you know, everybody talks about the fourth quarter or the the late in the game. That's where you really want to be able to activate tissue and have it produce high amounts of force and power when, in fact, offsetting the fatigue elements are going on. And this is what interval circuit training type of things actually kind of try to accomplish. Now, we, we learned a lot about its role as an adjunct relative to helping out with the development of muscle tissue mass, but its original thing was it's no good to build strength if it's not functional when you're fatigued late in a, in a game or at the end of a, of, a, of, a, of a quarter, end of a half. You have to be able to jump high. You have to be able to sprint fast, but it's all based upon the ability to offset 
the fatigue elements that are coming at you all the way from buffering mechanisms to uh, all, all the way to being able to in, reduce inhibition, et cetera. So the original survivor circuit, as Boyd put it, you know, he had, it, he had this, 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 this Herculean type guy sitting on top of a pile of bodies. And that was the way it really was looking at it, that basically we're going to survive when other people, other people fall down. Why is it happening? Well, that's the underlying physiology that, that we ended up understanding more. But again, it, it was an intense program that basically demanded a lot out of the individual. And it started at different levels and then basically created an adaptation for being able to produce force and power when you're under a fatigue condition of the sport. Yeah, I think, you know, when I first saw this, uh, I remember it was 2007 and I was attending a fly solo camp, I believe. And my mentor at the time, <clears throat> my boss, uh, Tom Blaney, showed this to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, it looks like a regular circuit. And it's different. It's just different. And then what we quickly found is people said, well, that's a football workout. And we actually had a guest on the other week who talked about when people say the argument of it's not sport specific, it's not this specific to our sport. He said, well, it's a human thing. Does your sport involve humans? Is the human body going to be asked to do demands outside of its normal domain? So this program actually had incredible applicability across a wide range of sports as the base foundation, not only in your attention to detail, your ability to push through things that are challenging in a fatigued state, but I think also, and, and if you could just kind of elaborate on this, if you don't recover from this thing, you're going to have to default or result in missing a workout or you're going to not be able to adapt because <clears throat> some of the loads doc that we're talking about on this thing we're looking at work rates of almost 30,000 pounds in a half hour 50,000 pounds in a half hour and this is all occurring at 75 percent of one rm most of life you're never going to experience something that recruits this much tissue and this much volume and this much load in such a short period of time how how did you guys go about figuring out what exercises and what those upper limits were and how to recover from it? Well, I, I think, again, you got to go back historically. This was an evolution of programmatic uh, sophistication. It didn't start that way. Essentially, the survivor circuit, then now known as the Husker, started off with three exercises, typically a, a hip sled, a bench press, and say a power clean. And you did 10 repetitions with 10 seconds rest in between the exercises at a relatively high intensity. And that load was modulated if you successfully could do the 10 reps or couldn't do the 10 reps. So then you went to each exercise and that was it. So it was a very low volume, but it, it started to expose people at level one to the, the, the conditions of the fact that you're gonna get this dramatic level of, of hydrogen ion production. Now, lactate doesn't cause fatigue. It's not related to pH change. It's related to pH changes, but it doesn't cause it. But that's a myth, myth that's many times misunderstood. But it shows you that fact that you have a high lactate type program, you got a lot of hydrogen ions that are basically getting in the way of the contraction types that we see with regard to movement. Now, what happens is that at level one, it was just exposure. So the way this originally was looked at by Boyd was to be able to look at it as a Tuesday, Thursday workout surrounding the Monday, Wednesday, Friday workouts that were heavy and related to strength. So you're not developing a lot of strength per se with the 
Husker program, they was trying to develop toleration to intense fatigue. And that's one of the things that we, we have to look at, the fatigue process. And obviously then to, to kind of, kind of complement the strength training aspect that was going on as well. Now, as the Husker improved, as individuals could go to the next level, now you add two sets to those three exercises. Then you get, and then you move forward and then you can add three sets. And then it evolved all the way to a 10 exercise sequence. Now it became a monster unto itself. And basically you can't do it as a complementary program two days a week around three day a week because now you got a five day a week program that's just not not recoverable so it ended up being that in our work and other work that we did over the years it started to be an alternate exercise where you had strength one day then you had you had the you had the husker at certain times of the year you basically did it and then you had a rest day completely so the key factor with regard to the short rest programs and remember, you got strength, power, and then you've got, if you're going to do it two days a week, you basically have to have a rest day following it. So you never, you, you never, you, you realize, we realized early on that you couldn't put a short rest, high intensity, high volume program when you're elevated up to the level three and beyond that basically was going to be done the day, be, be, you know, the day uh, before another heavy program. You, you had to need a rest day. And that's the mistake a lot of programs make. They do these high intensity, short rest protocols, but they don't have a rest day following it. And that's problem too with, with athletics. People have to realize is, as I think in the, one of the earlier podcasts, you have to realize what the sport coach is doing. So the bottom line is it's an integration of this type of program into a training sequence that has to be very importantly and strategically made. But the original Husker, the original survivor circuit was to complement the strength program that was going on three days a week to get at the construct of fatigue resistance when repetitive muscle actions and fatigue happens late in the game or in the fourth quarter, end of the half, et cetera. That was its original intent. And then it got builded. As people got more adapted, they could do more. And as you mentioned, some people gain adaptations in, in the aspects of all their different physiological functions relative to reduced inhibition, buffering of acid and everything else where they can do a tremendous amount. And then you got to know when to really stop and, and, and think about what do I do next? And obviously with this, I remember when Boyd first spoke to me about this and I talked about implementing it, he said, just remember, this is the nuclear bomb of the weight room. And I'm like, okay, that's a little bit of hyperbole. There's a lot of great programs. And he said, no. Is like you could kill somebody with this because the tonnages and the loads are so high at such high intensities for many young athletes. It's the first time they're ever going to experience it. And he's like, you're going to notice some really profound changes, but make sure you do it with caution. And so if you're listening to this, some of the things that we instituted, one, you didn't get a chance in any program I was with. You didn't get a chance to do this program unless you showed an extreme attention to detail and at least the block or two blocks prior to doing this. Because what I wanted to know was, you know, regardless of how athletic the athlete was, were they bought into recovery? Were they going to athletic training? Were they doing the right things nutritionally? Because there was no point in doing this program if they're a hot mess. This isn't something that you just stroll through and you have a finite amount of times that you can do this before you kind of peter out. So we wanted to make the most of it. The next thing, 
when you run any of these programs and, and you alluded to there's some changes, looking at the cognitive state of the athlete was very, very important for us in the moment to understand whether or not this was going to be effective. So if I ask them, how are you feeling? And they say, uh, and they can't get a word out, or you ask them to do a simple math, what's two plus two equation? And again, I was fortunate to be at Yale, so I know they should be able to do that. If they start losing these other systems early on in the program or at any point, you shut them down. If they start to throw up, some things happen like that. But again, that's not the goal. The goal is not to make someone sick. And so one of the things that you want to try to make sure that when you apply this is you don't get there. That's no different than when you go out on a football field and you say, we're going to run them into the ground. We're going to make them tough. You're not making them tough. You're making them sick. And not only that is depending on the athlete you're working with, someone getting sick in the weight room or someone not being able to complete the workout, that was poor dosage on your part as the practitioner. And we've mentioned before the weight room is like the emergency room. It's medicine. You're giving it to them. And so it's your obligation, your duty to make sure it's a best fit situation for your athletes with what you're giving them. And I know a lot of young coaches out there will say, well, I, I want them to learn how to push through. I want them to learn how to do these things. This is not the program to do that in. If you want someone to push through, you make sure they push through on the details of their workout card. You push through on their other aspects and other domains of their development. But in this program, if you want to get the most of it, you need to make sure that they're prepared. If when you look at the tonnage, which is your reps, your sets, and the weight moved, because these, these numbers are locked, and I know people go back and forth on tonnage. If your reps, sets, and intensities are locked, and you measure that, if they're not able to get out 30,000 pounds, it's been our experience, looking at DEXA data, looking at workout logs, they're not ready. And I think that Boyd, Doc, correct me if I'm wrong, he would wait until their sophomore, junior year to even use this program. So any program that we talk about or any program that you see has context and making sure that it's applied correctly because what you don't want to do is ever use something that has good intentions and put it in the wrong application. Yeah. And when we want to do that, Doc, could you talk a little bit, you mentioned about the recovering. We're fortunate enough, we had force plates we would go through and make sure that on Husker Day or on our activation days that we would see power levels return to at least 95% or greater. What are some other things, in your opinion, that you can use as a young coach to have context of, is this the right program? Should I continue or is it safe to continue? What would you say on that? Well, I think the, uh, I think the, the thing that came about to me is that this program that the way when I interacted with Boyd has to be progressively uh, prescribed over time. You, you really can't just throw a bunch of freshmen, senior, juniors, everybody in the same group and throw them into the same program. And eventually this is where a flexible nonlinear programming came about. We had to make a decision for each individual. Not every individual is capable of, of psychologically managing this type of program. And then from a coaching standpoint, you got to ask the question, is it really needed? We, we used to debate with Boyd, you know, really the baseball team really doesn't need to do this. Their sport has no demands relative to really anything related to being able to be under fatigue conditions. We'd much rather deal with the fact that they have a lot of eccentric damage that occurs from standing around all of a sudden having a sudden eccentric loading. So you got to know, are, is it being appropriated to the right sport, the right individual and the right dosage 
with the right progression if you're going to use it. But I, I was one that really stood on the point that, hey, this isn't for every individual sport, and you have to make the, the diagnosis in your strength diagnosis of why it's being used, and you then have to educate the athlete of what it's about. You don't want to – fatigue is very frightening, and that's something you want to educate people about, what it's the process of what's happening to them, and that's what we got better at over time, especially with Coach Martin when we were at UConn. You mentioned psychologically. What did you mean by that? Because I think every coach out there is searching for that mental toughness and pushing through. What is the actual psychological aspects that are happening? Because I know many people when they do this talk about, oh, I was kind of confused or I was this and that. And, and they get better. They tolerate. You talk about building up your endurance to fatigue. But what are the mechanisms of the brain when someone gets the, you know, runners get high, lifters get, uh, lifters dumbs. What is that? And then how, how do you know, though, if every coach wants something that's tough to help their team, and whether it's baseball, bowling, gymnastics, field hockey, what what is that adaptation, and, and how would a coach be able to tell if it's a good application or not? Well, unfortunately, a lot of it has to do with coaching education. Uh, our sport coaches need to be educated by the strength conditioning professionals and sports scientists about what what it is that they're doing for their athletes. I mean, in the old days, it used to be, uh, you know, if we go back and look at Junks and City Boys about the, the, the abuses that, that we've seen in, in football, if we look at even how they used to do basketball training back in the 50s with, you know, uh, you know, basically going back and forth with sprints the whole practice until you had blisters. And then in, in, in somewhere in the, in the 70s, early 80s, we got into the, what I used to call the puke index. If they didn't puke, it, was a, it wasn't a good workout. And they, these were all things, as you mentioned before, that they were indications of just being sick and not being able to physiologically cope with what the medication that you're giving them, to use your analogy. So I think the key thing here is the fact that readiness to train and again, I think a lot of mistakes were made in a lot of uh, coaching ranks when basically they would put young athletes who had no idea what they were doing under untenable conditions of extreme fatigue, and it became frightening. And the frightening was so frightening that they didn't want to do the workout. I remember myself, when I was a football player, we had what was called a circle drill. And we'd run around the still, and you'd beat the guy in front of you going over this big circle. And after a while, if you weren't in shape, you would be completely uh, fatigued. And you, you, you sat be at, the, at the study hall before practicing. I hope we don't have to do circle drill. But we weren't conditioned. We couldn't do that drill. It was a high, high glycolytic lactic acid type of protocol that basically was frightening because we didn't know what was going on. We were young, we weren't informed. And it was just a drill that people used. I look back at it. So I think, again, you have to realize that this type of short rest protocol is basically very demanding. It needs to be done progressively. It needs to be well-educated so the athletes know what they're trying to accomplish. But again, when you talk about what's happening in the brain, it's called inhibition. Brain inhibition is going on in the central system because it's getting all the signals from the respiratory centers. It's getting signals from the acidity. And basically, that whole phenomenon should be buffered and should be tolerated if, in fact, you're successful. But when you're pushing the edge of the envelope, you might get into those realms where it's not. And that's, as you mentioned, where the coach has to say, stop, shut it down. 
otherwise you're you're pushing them into the danger zone and we always think of that's a that's a, a really place where hey that's really cool it's not cool it's it's basically you're in the non-function and when you move into those extremes where you have not been before you got to go little step by little step and not just push them over the end and that's what happens in a lot of coaching situations they don't know what they're doing yeah you mentioned coaches think it's cool and, I, and i've asked them i said so if you went to the doctor and they you know were supposed to give you a tylenol you know but then you took three tylenol and then they took the bottle is that cool or is that just mismanagement of dose because i think that people forget there's a massive massive responsibility when you're a strength coach or you're a, a coach administering a resistance plan because you're doing something that's outside the normal biological realm of the person's day-to-day -day living and so you have to know and you're going to see these early warning shots and it's much better we would say play the under versus trying to go too far because overtraining or overexerting yourself yeah so you did an extra rep or two so what well now you blew your back out you can lose a career with one rep you can get into all sorts of cardiac stuff. You can get into all sorts of other um, heat-related stuff by pushing the envelope too far. And so making sure whenever you do a program, whether it's this or a strength plan, that you have some cutoffs to be able to see that. And, and I would ask, you've been in the weight room as much as you've been in the research lab. What are some of those cutoffs or things that you would use to diagnose a plan if we're starting to approach those danger zones? Well, I think, first of all, let's go back and look at what this is we're talking about. The entity is really a 10 repetition based set done to almost failure. We try to stay away from failure because it basically tells you that uh, there's a lot of other things that go on with it, but it's close. And then you're having short rest in the original survivor circuit started off at 10 seconds. And then we you know, you look at that and then basically it went to now where a lot of the circuits now, short race circuits are really traumatic when you go from two minutes to one minute. It, it, it really shows you the evolution. But I think the key thing is, is that what you're trying to do is, is allow the body to adapt to a number of different stress responses. You're, it's going to be what we call sympathoadrenergic stress is going to be big time, meaning your sympathetic nervous system is driving down to the adrenal uh, medulla, and you're putting out adrenaline or epinephrine at high amounts. In our study that we did on it later on and published, we showed that if you look at the typical max treadmill and you look at the survivor circuit, the full-blown one, 10, 10, set, 10 exercises, three sets, short rest, it almost doubles or triples the epinephrine response of a treadmill max. So your whole phenomenon of your adrenergic stress is just sky high. And we also found out in that particular study was the fact that that stress was tolerated by bodybuilder types who were doing short whisk programs in their cut phase, but was not tolerated at all by powerlifters who didn't have any exposure to that. They could lift and they were ready to start, but when you put them to the full-blown program, they could not, in fact, their percentage of the max that their 10 reps were done at was dramatically lower than the bodybuilder types compared to comparably. But what's also interesting is, is the fact that, again, it's because of, the, of these other demands of stress. So I think what we looked at in this whole program, we couldn't even in this study do average college students. They couldn't tolerate it. They couldn't tolerate it at all. So you got the you go back to symptomatology. 
if you're, you're, you know, Boyd always said, you know, you get extremely sore too. If you go and start stressing at high levels and you, you know, you, what happens is that you get a lot of muscle soreness. I also caution that these type of programs, if not properly done, can lead to rhabdo, rhabdomolysis, where basically there is no recovery. You did too much, too long, too much volume. And basically it wasn't progressive. So again, toleration is very important. So any type of symptomatology of dizziness, of, uh, of, of nausea, of vomiting, of any type of symptomatology, that is the end point of that workout. That being that, it's shut down right away. And a lot of times when people do it on their own or people do it with a, with a partner and they're not supervised, they, they go over the top. Yeah, and I think what's important to hear on that is if someone gets through, say, two, two stations and they stop, and then the next time they come back and get three or four, that's improvement. Because what are we trying to do? We're trying to progress. We're trying to develop. But the idea that day one, 100 athletes, or if you're working with any kind of team, say 30 or 40 people are all going to finish at the same time. Can you imagine if they ran a mile test and said, nope, we all have to hit a six-minute mile? It's not like that. But sometimes in the weight room, people will say, this is the workout. We're all going to do it. We're going to give max effort. But the problem is... If not careful, you're going to undertrain some, you're going to overtrain the others. And that's really where you've always said to us about really looking at the individual response. And you mentioned right. some of those subsystems. Yeah. I think it's important for people to know there's so much book knowledge, there's so much physiology that it's going to be something that your entire life you're trying to learn. If you don't know those subsystems, it's hard to figure out where the adaptation is going to occur. And that's your rate limiting factor. But it's okay to do a program, find out the cutoff point, and then use the progression through that station or through that lift as a marker that yes, we're actually improving. I think that gets lost, especially in college where it's a go, go, go. I wanna make sure everyone's getting through it, but that's not gonna ultimately lead to the best player development. Yeah, I think I think the big thing here is that we, we this is where flexible nonlinear programming, you really can't, program everybody in a mass program. Uh, you can start off with a mass program of what you know important for the sport and everything else, but how people do different workouts. I mean, the, the really truly successful programs have a, a group plan, but then it's highly individualized as far as what they're doing in that group plan and how it's progressing. So that it's very difficult. A lot of times uh, circuit weight training programs of this type have been done in physical education classes, they've been done in, in fitness centers, and everybody's doing the same thing, going around the circle, so to speak. And unfortunately, that's not how the, the Husker, as you call it, is really to be implemented. It's to be implemented. We when, we when I was down at Nebraska, Boyd, we'd implemented in groups of three, where we could look at people that were in three groups with the three exercises. So I think another thing is, is that if you're going to implement it, you have to really look at each training station as being a group of people that have the same type of progression level if you're going to do it. If I was doing it today and I had 20 uh, stations, well, every station would be assigned a group that I knew you'd be where it'd be beginner, whatever, different level one, level two, level three, advanced, and then they would do it. And if I had a group that's doing the big giant one with multi-exercises, I'm going to train them at another time altogether. But I think a lot of time due to logistics, you know, that's a problem. I, I remember one time a strength coach, you know, I, I was looking at, 
at, at, at the programs and evaluating it one time decades ago. And I said, well, what happened to the one exercise that we said we were going to use? And he said, well, it didn't fit on the card. And that, that, that typified way back decades ago that people were, were so much managed by the logistics of the, of the demands of the workout and the, and the logistics that they, they didn't pay attention to what the heck the stimuli was. So it all goes back to what the stimuli is, what, what you're using that program for, the level that you want to use it at. And then it comes to the point, too, where, you know, where, where do you where do you top it off or may, or say, hey, I don't need to get them any better. They're fine. We need to work on other things. And we need, maybe we need to work on power days. And we just maintain that type of buffering systems and everything else. We don't, we don't just, you know, constantly do the same things. Okay, well, we keep doing, keep doing, keep doing it. It doesn't matter anymore at a certain point. You've got all your buffering systems up. You've developed the ability to tolerate high epinephrine levels. And that's not going to freak out your body. So you got to say, okay, we're ready to ma maintain it. It's the same thing we talked about strength. How, if you're not a power lifter, how much, how much, how much squat strength do you need? You know, do you need to, to squat four times your body mass or three times your body mass? So where you go to a maintenance programs is becomes very important. And then you got to worry about when you do it and how you do it. And basically that you're not making it uh, excess when you're, you know, the, the, the cost benefit ratio for doing more and how more is, is not there. Yeah, and I know for football, we typically saw that in around 50,000 pounds. So in 36 minutes of the nine station format, right around 50,000 pounds, there's probably other things that you can work on because the load on that becomes so hard to recover from. There's other things you can do. There's other angles. There's other velocities. There's other things that become important. But typically, from the experience that I've had over the last 15 years of using this, is typically in and around 50,000 pounds or a 405 squat, 410 squat for three sets of 10 is where you start to see it. And could you kind of comment too on what do you think might be occurring at that? Well, I think what's happening is that when you get to a point on a particular workout where in fact you've made all the adaptations that are potentially available for the body to make, basically you, you bump against that, that genetic ceiling. And when you bump against it close to that genetic ceiling, you basically are in a scenario where the keeping pushing it is not necessary. Now we did a study back with my, with my good friend, uh, uh, Kale Hacken in Finland, he looked at a study on his own with Olympic weightlifters. And over two years, they make very small gains in, in, in muscle size. They, they, all the gains are made in neurological adaptations that make an increase of maybe a few kilos, but that's again, a weightlifting uh, progression. So I think what we see here is again, uh, we're trying to do a number of things with this type of circuit programming. Uh, number one, we're trying to be able to tolerate high fatigue conditions. That means we have great buffering systems and we can tolerate the phenomenon of, of sympathoadrenergic stress. So that doesn't frighten our athlete when they're in the in competition or meeting scenarios where the, where the body is going to give that type of response. The next thing that we see is that what we haven't talked about yet is is the, is the stimulation of, of complementary anabolic endocrine system measures that basically complement the growth of tissue. But the recovery aspect that we talked about is also very important. 
when you talk about the whole phenomenon of the recovery, remember, if you don't recover, cortisol starts going up and cortisol, then you come back the next day. And if you hit it again with something else, cortisol is not going to go back down to resting levels. 24 hours later, we want cortisol levels, which are normal to go up high with the response to a very intense workout training session or sport, but we want it 24 hours later to come back down. And what mistakes people make is they don't know how to sequence workouts. They don't know how to sequence practices. And what happens is the cortisol starts making a slow elevated rise along with muscle damage. And this results in the fact that you're not able to recovery because cortisol is a catabolic hormone. It eats away and does a variety of other things along with free radicals that doesn't allow for remodeling and repair of muscle. But I know that we had talked, isn't that something though that the plates can catch? Isn't that something that can be a great guide as far as being able to monitor that? Because I think back to so many of our conversations, you always said there's an assessment before you start. So whether it's checking the patellar tendon for tenderness, whether it's asking the athlete, what's your psychological state? Your, your body might be fine, but maybe you lost your mother. Maybe you had something going on. But I think you had mentioned to us that the plates were a huge indicator to be able to throw in before any of these plans to kind of get a sense of both the kind of chronic adaptations that are going on and the acute state of the person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, not to be hyperbole based on the, uh, uh, the podcast here that we're talking about, but I've been talking about the use of, 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 of some measures of power and the force plates, if they're there and they're able to be utilized are are really the construct variable that you can use. We've also used Vertec as well to be able to understand it. But I do think that the force plate gives you a lot of information about the readiness of an athlete to train. And I think a lot of the more elite type of sport training scenarios will utilize plates and have it. But I say that doesn't mean that if you're at a high school and you have no ability yet to get a plate and funding, you know, and you're working on it or whatever, that, that you need to have some type of vertex to be able to know if in fact there is a reduction in power. Power is really based in strength, but it's more sensitive to degradation than strength is strength. When you lose strength, and that's why we see in the survivor circuit progressions with Boyd, we saw the fact that when a person would come back the next time, maybe two exercises could be increased in loading, but the third one couldn't be because it was actually not, they weren't capable of doing the 10 reps. Yeah, absolutely. You cannot just carte blanche, raise everything. You have to auto-regulate every set, every exercise and each day independently, because what happens is they just kind of burn out. And we would always talk about, you have a finite amount of time that you can do these exposures. And so to go in and overshoot the bench, say, and create a failure state, you now screwed up the rest of that workout. And so it's incumbent on you to know, I can back off here, I can you know, go a little bit lighter here, but we're looking at that total exposure at the end of the day, not any one particular exercise going to failure. Because as soon as you fail once, it's hard to come back from that. And we didn't want to ever do that. Yeah, one of the things that, that I think that Boyd did is we, we didn't necessarily make, although failure occurs, we didn't make failure the end point of the 10 reps. The other thing that that's important to understand too, is, is the fact that you're looking at a particular program protocol, 
and you're you're trying to optimize it to 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 what that individual can do. And again, failure many times creates a lot of aspects. Especially, how do you fail in a power clean? You can't. It's a multi joint exercises. It it fails at segments, you know, and that that's something that isn't even feasible in the real world. But the other thing I was going to mention is many coaches don't do as as you've talked about in the past the inventory, the acute inventory. I think. Your last podcast covered that with Toby, the acute inventory of what's going on during the workout. And that that's that's something that nobody pays attention to. And that's the problem we see with many places where you have one strength coach. And I was there. I, I was a strength coach back in 1975 with high school kids and everything else. One strength coach and have a whole mass of athletes. How do you manage all that? And you found out right away that you only way you can manage it is by basically condensing what the different time points are and what they're doing. And it, it becomes a challenge, but you have to look at the acute workout. So in sophisticated levels, where we're at today in 2022 is a lot different than the way we were at 1975 or 1980 or 1990. We know so much more relative to the research, relative to what we know. And we got a lot of people that do not want to get into the the, the weeds, so to speak, to really understand how to modulate workouts, how to monitor workouts, and then how to do the accounting, as you say, of the workouts to see what's coming next. And then monitoring, as we did with Coach Martin, all the practice sessions so we knew what the coaches were doing. Because many times what we found, I think was mentioned last podcast, the coaches mess up the workouts you're trying to accomplish, and then you got to back off and go start over. You, you can't just drive through it. You've got to basically understand what's going on in the total scheme of the world that athlete lives in. Yeah, I don't know if they mess it up so much as they create that disruption. You always talked about disruption. They want to work on skill. Skill is important. That's why they're in the college. We are always going to be second to the coach that recruited them. However, if you want to have synergy and you want to develop an athlete, you have to be on the same page. And so when we talked about, say, I don't know, whether it's football or soccer, have that conversation. And then you, if you, you know, have done your homework and you've done your accounting, you can say to a coach, listen, you can do all these drills you want, but the largest liability, the largest area of weakness on this individual is strength. Let's back out of some of the other things, because as you pointed out, you, you have that weak of exposure and that's sports, that's life, that's school, that's the weight room. And it's so for the modern coach, especially in the world of analytics, you have to be the one that stewards that athlete's development process by bringing all the stakeholders together, having a plan, having a conversation, if not daily, but weekly. Are we trending in the right direction? I would ask coaches and sport coaches, are you headed in the right direction? Yes, cool, what got better? And if you can't articulate to me, and not just you, the strength coach, but the sport coach needs to articulate, yes, our squats have gotten better. This person's at one and a half times their body weight. This person passed their conditioning test. If all parties involved can't articulate the athlete development plan, then you're missing a huge opportunity. And I think it's relationships with the sport coach and relationships with the athlete. The, the strength coach, sport performance coach, whatever you want to say, it's is a crucial link to the cogs of, of the whole machine that's working. And if, if they don't have a relationship with the sport coach, you're almost, you might as well pack it in. It doesn't work because I've had experience over the last 45, 50 years 
where, you know, the coach is going to do what they want to do. They, they read a, you know, even in the military, when I was in the military, if you have a, a general that's reading men's health and he finds out this is what it should be done and that's his source of knowledge, well, then how can you, how can you fight it if, in fact, they have all the power? So the lot of times what you see is the fact that hopefully education and knowledge and awareness by the coach and, and by the athlete and by the individuals involved in sports medicine, et cetera, are all going to be, as you like to use the term, aligned. So this is the case. And I know this is something that, uh, you know, I've been appreciative of working with you when I did and also at Ohio State. We're aligning things. And, and it's not easy because you have because knowledge is threatening to some people. And people don't like to feel that they are ignorant. And I have a saying that we've said over and over over the years, ignorance makes you vulnerable. So let's all together try to do the right thing to get less, more knowledge, so that basically that little athlete that we're serving basically is going to get the best type of product, the best outcome possible, that they can achieve their dreams. And again, not every athlete can go to the top of the ladder. Not everybody's the gold medalist. And I used to always, uh, uh, you know, really object to people to say, anybody can be a world champion. We had a lot of people say that in, in over the last 40 years that I've been in strength training, you know, trying to convince anybody can be a world champion. Anybody, well, you know, there's a pool of people that can be a world champion, but we're not worried about that. We're worried about our job is to give you the best opportunity to train and condition and be ready to take on a competition and be successful within your level of genetic adaptation, genetic uh, availability, and, 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 and have good self-esteem. I mean, I feel so bad for athletes that, that come out of sports with a negative self-esteem because they were mis, misappropriated, mis, mis, they didn't weren't coached right. No mentorship really occurred. Yeah, and I think that that's what we're seeing now, right? It used to be one coach. You mentioned back in the day, you'd be one coach with all these teams and all these athletes. But now, kind of the modern paradigm is you have a sports psychologist, you have an athletic trainer, you have all these different you know, nutritionist subsystems and support networks. And everybody plays a role in that athlete. And definitely performance in that paradigm has shifted towards the kind of holistic approach. But I think, again, a huge opportunity in that in that team is to kind of lead the conversation of well, what are we doing at the individual level? What does this person need? Where are they headed? And understand, too, because I've spoken to some sport coaches, they're the ones who get fired. And I think that's something that's going to have to be discussed moving forward is that it's kind of hard when I'm in the last year of my contract, I'm not necessarily looking at the long-term impact of something. I, I'm trying to make sure I can pay my mortgage, but the nutritionist isn't getting fired. The sports medicine's not getting fired. And I think that that's the rub that kind of is the elephant in the room that nobody will talk about. Yeah. But if you don't have those conversations, not only do you underperform, ultimately the athlete is going to be the one that suffers and i think you owe it to any athlete you work with especially in the role of performance or strength and conditioning to have their best interests in mind and, and that's certainly an ethical challenge well i think the whole phenomenon of alignment and uh understanding where the conversations need to occur with regard to the other professional entities in the world of your sports program development sports performance aspect need to occur and, and that, that's where, you know, what the military has gone to is evidence-based practice. And, and while evidence-based practice is vital and important, 
it, it, it's, it's, like a, it's like a compass needle. It'll send you the right direction south, but there's not enough studies to take you to step-by-step step for each individual. The same thing, again, I made the analogies way back 35 years ago at a conference uh, lecture. It's like the physician. Medical professionals are in the same problem that, that the strength and conditioning sport performance professional is. They've got to take the science and understand it, try out the approach and see if it works, but then assess it. And even, even psychologists, they'll tell you, I remember having a talk with my friends when I was in the army, sports, this army psychologist, psychiatrist, say, well, I got about five theories I can work on with this individual. So I pick one that seems to be the most obvious, and then I see if we make progress. But again, that comes back to assessment, comes back to evaluation. And many times people get overwhelmed with the whole phenomenon of all the work that's involved. And then you spend a lot of times in meetings, you spend a lot of times doing other things rather than doing the assessment and the evaluations. And I think you brought it out best when I was at uh, your place a while back and a few years ago, you're talking about what your internship program was and how you taught people to have to be, get home at night at about eight, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock and be able to have to still think and do things. And the fact is, is that success many times it comes in the way you're going to be able to quickly assess what happened that day with the athletes you worked with and what they're going to do next, get it programmed. And obviously technology is what's helping us do that more efficiently than we have had in the past. I mean, I used to use cards and Coach Martin and I at, at UConn, when we started in the old days, we're using cards and having to go through that and type it on Excel sheets for crying out loud. I know Coach Tovey was going to lose his mind if we had any more cards, so that's where his big push for the auditor and the slicer went. If you haven't heard that podcast, take a look at that with uh, Coach Tovey Zimnicki and then applying that with the, the team builder platform saved us a lot of time and a lot of paper. But I think that, you know, you hit it on the head, especially in the situation we were in. I didn't like keeping interns there till 9 o'clock. I didn't like being there till 9 o'clock, but it's what had to be done to do it right. The success that we had took time and you know ideally if you don't want people staying late then give us a staff of 15 you got 32 teams you want them to be elite it takes time and and that care that goes into the program i think the athletes see that the athletes understand the effort that you put in when they look around and their program's a little different it's five percent different it's a modified exercise it's an addition of something and that's really what you need to do when you talk about truly being at the tip of the spears to individualize those exposures, those stimuli to exactly what needs to be done to get an adaptation that's going to help you. Yeah. And I think the, again, you got to go back to the, to the book I always brought up with you guys by the Nobel laureate, uh, uh, you know, in psychology, fast thing, slow think, you know, it, it's easy to make quick observations and correlations environmentally and what you deal with and what you've done with fast think because there's no energy involved. It's quick response. But the real challenge is, is the slow think when you got to go in and try to study something, try to understand it, read, do the real work that can take up the, uh, you know, the estimation was it can take up the 27 to 37 more percent metabolic energy of the brain to do that with the different hubs that are working on it. Plus there's a lot of subconscious stuff that goes on. that's also energetic as well. So I think the challenge today many times is, is how do we manage the number of athletes we have? Now, at many places, you know, you have coaches that have X number of teams and they can manage it. 
you know, so I was at a, at a recent conference down at college in New Jersey. And I think I heard right when I listened to the, uh, the strength coach at assistant strength coach at Princeton say, I think there's about seven, eight assistants so they can manage the different programs, the different sports. But again, when you talk about having 36 sports, you talk about every, all the athletes are involved. I mean, I remember how difficult it was back when I was a strength coach uh, managing, you know, 500 athletes and then, or managing, you know, sports that didn't even know how to weight train. Now I'm teaching how to do exercises because it was in the primordial days of the seventies. And, and even when we were at Wyoming in the early eighties, you know, getting off of different fads and going into real strength training programs with then coach Mike Clark, who's now the performance uh, specialist with the Detroit lions, you know, recently. So, and having been a long-term strength coach, uh, you know, in the colleges and pro ranks himself, he, you know, he learned that. So the bottom line is, and coach Martin, you know, we, we, we struggled with, with the whole phenomenon of managing each individual athlete. And again, flexible nonlinear became obvious to me way back in our work, my work at Penn State and, and continues today all the way through all, all the years now at Ohio State, you basically have to have a group workout, but you have to individualize everything. And that's where it really is challenging. But I like the way um, you and, and, and Toby talked about the aspect of, you know, really being able to manage the pre-phase of a workout, manage the acute phase of the workout while it's going on, if you need to default or not, what's going on, and then managing the post-workout or the kind of the accounting of that whole phenomenon. That series is not needs to be done better by all of us in the field. Well, it sounds like we got a we got a topic for our next podcast because I think that again, flexible nonlinear certainly did well for me. It did well for Jerry and 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 we're still just at the um, the infancy of that programming style, that architecture and language because we're becoming more equipped. We have technology in the weight room that used to be in a lab. We have access to machine learning. We have access to analytics that 10 years ago weren't even possible. So I'm excited to see as that goes forward, what that becomes and evolves, just like the, the metabolic circuit and the Husker went through its its development and metamorphosis. I'll be curious to see what that is, but we do need to get you on to kind of make sure that anybody that's interested in that starts off by doing it the right way in the classical sense, because there are principles. I think you mentioned to us at one point, there's something like 10 to the 65th power reps and sets. And the good news is there's a lot of options. The bad news is there's a lot of less optimal ones. And so we're gonna need to bring you back on for, for that to kind of talk about it. But I just wanna ask as we kind of close out here, you've seen a lot, you've done a lot. If you have one nugget that you wish you could go back and tell you know, Coach Kramer, uh, day one uh, in his journey and career, what would it be? And, and maybe that applies to some of the young coaches out there. Well, I, I guess what I would say is that after doing this for close to a half century, uh, you know, and looking at all the different aspects of it, I, I wanted to just to, to mention that uh, I think what, what I wish I would have known is the individuality of, of, of uh, training response, because in all my research, we always have standard deviations. We do group programs and you try to, in, you know, it's individualized to an extent, but I think the point is, is that there's such individual responses of the body's uh, physiology. And we haven't really talked a lot about the uh, adaptive influence of, of short rest programs to the hormonal aspects of 
of stimulating tissue growth, et cetera, which is a very important aspect. But I think it's really highly individual and in that everybody is working at a different step in their progression to their genetic max of a particular parameter. And I think many times uh, we, we didn't really understand the individuality and the specificity of the individual workout. That's the other thing too. The fingerprint of the different workouts are so different. And I think when Dr. Steve Fleck and I wrote our first book, we looked at the five, the acute program variables and we came up with a, with a, with a, a model that, yeah, it, there is probably 10 to the 67th power of different programs. If you include all the different variables in the five domains, it's, it drives you crazy. But yeah, there are optimal programs that basically can be done, but it's only optimal in a certain period of time at a certain temporal time frame for that individual. And that workout may not be optimal or do anything later on or, or before you can put the wrong program too soon. You can do all these things. And that individuality has to be incorporated in how you manage the athletes and then how you interact with the sport coach. Because again, I use the term mess up because that's the way I felt about it. The, the coach would come in and when I was a, a strength coach and say, well, we're going to do this, you know, we're going to run them for three hours on the basketball court. I said, well, crying out loud, you do that. I might as well not even strength train, just give them a day off. You know, that you're messing up my sequence, my programming as I got more control and power and even working in the military, it's so very important for resilience and recovery and aspects. And I had to spend a lot of time trying to say, Hey, you know, the battlefield's an anaerobic battlefield. We have to have strength and power. And we're now even over many decades still working to that point where war fighters need to be strong. They need to be capable in a lot of factors beyond just running the, you know, 10 mile road races and, and be able to do a 25 mile rucksack carry, et cetera. So it's still, everything is still in a primordial manner in many aspects as we move into really sophisticated programs for athletes for optimal pro player development, program development. So I guess I wish I would have known more about the individuality of, of the response to a given stimuli, knew more about the fingerprint of each workout and what it means, why I'm doing it. And again, it, you have both the recovery aspects that we haven't got into enough. We can do that another day and how, how it develops muscle, how it re muscle remodels and recovers. That's a whole nother nice discussion to have. But I think we've covered kind of the origin of the survivor circuit. It, it starts off uh, very slow, very progressive. It's managed individually and not everybody is going to need it to the same degree. And that that's one of the things we got to think about. So I don't know. That's about all I can say. And uh, it's a fun part being a, involved with just a, a discussion here today on this very uh domain of short rest workouts, which this was really crucial because of the intensity load that was utilized. Well, Doc, as always, whenever we talk, I, I end up having more questions uh, than when I started, but definitely take some time to think about some of the things that you said today. And I think if you're listening, figure out how you can apply one thing that you heard today into your day-to-day -day program. And whether it's short rest cycles, whether it's layouts, whether it's alignment with your sport coach, what can you do 1% better? And that'll ultimately help um, your program as a whole and your individual athlete development. Any other questions, we'd love to hear from you at hawkandynamics.com. Feel free to reach out. And Doc, we'll definitely get you back on here soon and hope you have a great summer. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks again. All the best. Be smart, be well, and stay safe. Thank Thanks, you. Doc.